Good afternoon. Good seeing you guys. I cannot verify this fact. So I guess it's questionable as to whether it's a fact or not. But I believe every man is a proud driver. Every man, when they get behind the wheel, should never feel like they're being questioned in their driving ability or their navigating skills. Every man's a proud driver. I don't know what it is, okay? I can't say that this is from God because it probably appeals more to our pride and our sin than it does anything righteous. But I have to tell you, okay, like I think I'm a pretty peaceable person, but for some reason, anytime I hit the road, right, and my wife, Pastor Daisy, is in the car, right, there always comes a moment, and this is not out of any ill intent, okay, but she will just, in her sweet godly righteous self out of our concern for our impending destination that we will make it to the right place right will look at me and say billy do you know where you're going i'm like daisy come on now i know i absolutely know where i'm going how dare you ask when i have google maps guiding me right in front of the dashboard. But I have to admit, okay, it's not unfounded because there have been so many times where I have Navi on and I still get lost. Okay. I know it takes a lot to admit that right now. So I'm being very vulnerable with you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Come on, brother. Right. Man, I don't know what it is, but for men, okay, I can't speak on behalf of all men. Okay. So I'll just speak on behalf of myself. Okay. For me, there is something about driving when you're behind the wheel and you're in control of your destiny, right? And for someone to question your direction, I feel like I'm not trusted. So I look back at Pastor Daisy and as humbly as I possibly can, I look to her and I say, baby, dear, do you not trust me? Do you not have faith in my driving? Do you not have faith in the direction of where I am guiding our family? To which, if she were honest, she would say, I trust you as a person. Your driving, on the other hand, is to be questioned. (laughs) I make light of this silly illustration to make a point that every day in life, we're constantly putting our faith in someone or something. Since I've come to Korea, I constantly put my faith in the coupon delivery man. It is amazing. You can order something at 11 o'clock p.m., 11.59 p.m. But if you have enough in your shopping cart and you qualify for rocket shipping, they rocket ship it to you. The next day, man, I had Amazon in the States, but Amazon can't even keep up with coupon, right? But I put my faith in the delivery man that he's going to pull through. And it's amazing. This is crazy, right? The first time I ordered through coupon, right? They call you and they're like, oh, you're not home. Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Like, they're like, would you like us to leave it at your door? And I'm like, where else would you leave it? They're like, okay. They leave it at my door. They take a picture of it. I get it texted. I'm like, this is amazing, right? I put my trust and my faith in the coupon delivery man. Many of us too, we put our faith in people every single day of our lives. Whether you're at work, you're working on a project with your coworkers, you have to put your trust and your faith in your coworkers, in your families, and certainly even here in our community. 
we are constantly putting our faith and our trust in one another to create the dynamic, organic community that we're all seeking. Faith is a very important aspect and element of our lives as a whole. Even in our relationship with God. As we've been going throughout this series in Galatians, we've talked about how God doesn't demand works as a way or a means to prove ourselves or our salvation. God instead says, put your faith in me. You can be justified by faith alone. Faith is by which I will measure how or why not you should come into or not into my kingdom. But as I talked about last week, this could be offensive to some people, right? Faith seems too easy. Trust seems too easy because there's no demand for obedience. And so like I mentioned, there are so many people who are turned off by Christianity because there's no room for elitism. If you are judged or if your performance was the measure or the base by which you are accepted into the community or the family of God, then there's reason for us to look at each other and be like, ah, bad Christian. A worse Christian. Ooh, better. Best. Holiest. But because faith is the measure, trust is the measure, there's no room to compare. And God simply makes all things horizontal. So the question that I want to ask and pose today as we continue on in Galatians 3 is this. Why would God choose faith as the means to be saved? Why would God choose our faith in Him, our trust in who He is and the promises that He's given? Why would He choose faith to be the measure of our salvation? Because look, we've talked about this before. The easiest way to try to measure someone's intent or the best that we have is their behavior, right? So if someone doesn't act well, you go, oh, that person must be bad. It's just convenient that way. God could have done that as well. And yet, Instead of making our behavior or our moral adherence to his commands as the baseline, he makes it faith. Why? Why? That is the question I want to ask today. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to go back to Galatians chapter 3. And so we're going to get started. And as you guys are going there, I want to again spell out the context. Remind yourselves, Paul is writing this to the church of Galatia where there were these Judaizers, right? These Jewish teachers, false teachers who were invading the community. They were saying something along the lines of, you Christians say faith in Christ is the way to be saved. Good. Great. That's awesome. But if you want to stay acceptable, here's some things that you have to do. And some of those things that were introduced into the community of God at Galatia by these false teachers were things like circumcision. You got to be circumcised like a good Jew if you want to be recognized as a part of the family of God. You also have to change your eating habits. You got to go back to old Jewish eating standards. Also, you got to be clean. You can't relate with people who are unclean, people like Gentiles who are non-Jews. There were all these rules being established. And so Paul... Being the master order, being the master of rhetoric that he is, Paul says, oh, you want to play that game? You want to play the Jewish game? I, I, Joe, I hear you. So what Paul begins to do in Galatians 3, he goes, if you want to speak Jewish with me, we're going to go Jewish today. And he goes, I'm going to call upon Father Abraham. 
You want to talk about the Jew of Jews? There ain't no one bigger and higher than Abraham himself. The one who received the initial promises of God. That if he would believe in God, then his belief, his faith, his trust would be credited to him as righteousness. Paul says, I'll play your game. And we're going to talk about Abraham. And so that's where we pick up in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to start in verses 10 and on. This is what Paul writes. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And as we established already in the previous sermons, no one can be justified or saved by the law because no one is able to measure up or attain to the perfection of who God is. And so it might be surprising to see Paul write that everyone who has seen, heard, or even known or attempted to live by the law is cursed. It might shock you a bit, right? I mean, could you, why should anyone be cursed for trying? Why should you be cursed for knowing? Now, I want to illustrate this a bit. It is not unreasonable for God, being as holy, pure, righteous, and awesome as He is, to demand out of those around Him to the measure of who He is. If you meet a president, I don't know, America's last beloved president, Barack Obama. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I'm not trying to speak politics right now, okay? I'm just saying, okay, if you go by public consensus, okay? If Barack Obama walked into this room and Barack Obama said, would you please stand? You would be like, okay, I don't know what we're standing for, but I'm going to stand because it's Barack Obama, right? No one would look at that request given by... Obama and say that's wrong or that's unjust or that's unreasonable. Someone of that stature is okay to demand something like that. I want to also illustrate this another way, maybe a little bit more personally. Okay, this is like sports season, right? The NBA season is over on a very anticlimactic note, but I'm all for dynasty. So congratulations to the Golden State Warriors. James is shaking his head. How dare you? Okay. Okay. And we're in the middle of history. I love being in the middle of history. Okay. Um, but growing up, okay, I was not like a baller. I, I was not one of those cool kids, right? I was so, like, I wanted to be, okay? I really did. It's really sad, okay? I asked one of my friends, I was like, hey, yo, like, like in elementary school, like, I'll never forget this. This is a trauma, right? I was like, yo, how can I play in the basketball league that you're playing? He's like, like, you can't play. And I was like, why? And he was like, because you're Korean. And I was like, I was like, that's racist, right? <laughs> right? But in the end, I found out it's because I was so bad that he didn't want me on his team, okay? <laughs> right? Like, I always wanted to be a baller. So I found a way to be a baller. I became a golf baller. <laughs> right? I got flat feet, too. So I have, a tr I have a lot of trouble running, right? And I'm not like, just, like, I wouldn't have qualified for even Korean military service, right? Like, I'm like, oh, tari apayo, right? All the time. And I had to get, like, custom orthotics and stuff, right? So I became a golfer, okay? Now, my, like, I loved golf, right? I loved golf so much. I started when I was nine, right? Because my mom was a golfer and it was a way to just connect with her and stuff. But like over the years, right? I would play in like junior tournaments, 
right? I worked at a golf shop for like six years and I loved it, right? I loved it, right? I so wanted to work at a golf shop, I kind of scared the owner of the shop, right? It was a very reputable shop. Every Saturday on my off days, I would just go to the golf shop and hang out for like three hours, right? And then I would talk to the owner. I would be like, do you need help with anything? <laughs> it was when I was in high school, right? He was like, he was like, it was so funny. We had a conversation one day. He was like, you know, Billy, you're, you're a nice guy. And I was like, oh, thanks, boss. And he's like, yeah, because in the beginning, I was kind of scared of you. And I was like, I was like, why? And he goes, because you would just show up and offer help. And I didn't know if you're trying to steal something or like, you know, it's just weird. He was like, you were too nice. And I was like, no, that's how much I wanted to work here. Right. So golf was like my life. I was captain of my high school golf team, um, not because I was the best, but because um, the guys who were better than me couldn't speak English. And so, uh, so, so yeah, I was like. That's not the thing you want. I mean, I was good enough. I was still like in the top four, right? You know, and two of those, um, one of those, one of the guys on our golf team ended up going on to the, um, the PGA. Yeah, he's like a professional, right? But it was so funny because he was like, yeah, Billy, you're going to be our captain because you're the only one who could speak English well. And I was like, tell me I'm good for something besides my, my language skills. My goodness, okay? So, you know, like over the years, right? Like it was my dream to become a professional golfer. Like, yeah, you know, like on the range, like I have such a, uh, not to brag, but to brag. So to brag, <laughs> like I have, I have like such a nice range swing, right? So when people see me, they go, oh my gosh, you must be so good, right? But I don't have the mental, like to survive on the course, right? I'm so bad. Like if I hit like a bad shot, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm the worst. Like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so bad. So I don't have the grit to be able to survive in like competitive sports, right? But I just, I just love golf and I always want to be a pro, get free clubs and be one of those awesome, like cool guys, right? And so, you know, like I was there when Tiger Woods won his first major in 1997 of April, the Masters tournament, right? I was watching it. I was like, oh, like, yeah, like everyone else who played golf in the 90s, they were all Caucasian, right? But for the first time, I'm like, I'm one degree closer, right? Like I can a little bit more relate with Tiger Woods than I can anyone else, you know, right? Like he was the hope of all Asian golfers, right? Like we can make it with you, okay? But let me tell you, nobody can just be like, I want to be a professional golfer. So because I want to be a professional golfer, you should let me be a professional golfer. In fact, the most prestigious tournament that you could win is the Masters Tournament, right? Any professional golfer, you can ask them, right, if they win any other major, right? Like, for PR's sake, you have to be like, oh, it's such an honor that I won this, right? Wow, thank you so much to the USGA or blah, 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 whatever. But in the end, everyone's like, I want to win the Masters. But here's the deal. If you want to even get into the Masters Tournament, there's so many stipulations that you have to follow, abide by, or to even qualify to take part in it. The Masters Tournament is cool. It's one of the only tournaments where there's no limit in terms of how many people can play. But it's because there's so many qualifications that not many people even are able to make it. So I want to read some for you, okay? Here's the first law that you have to abide by to qualify for the Masters. You have to be a winner of a previous Masters to be invited. <laughs> okay. okay, yeah, okay, yeah. so that, that can't be the first way you get in, right? So you've got to be a winner. Or you have to won a major championship, right? And there's only four majors in golf within the last five years. <laughs> okay, so how many is that, right? It's like maybe at most 20 people, right? 
20 people out of all the golfers in the entire universe, right? And then it sucks. If someone wins more than one major, that, that becomes less than 20 people, okay? Or third, you have to have won a very important tournament called the Players' Championship within the last three years, okay? Or you have to won the Olympic golf tournament the last time it was played, and you would only then qualify for the Masters the following year, right? And the Olympics only happens once every four years, okay? Or you have to have won the U.S. or the British or the Asian Pacific, or the Latin amateur golf tournaments. So you got to be only one of four people, right, as an amateur. Or you have to have finished in the top 12 of last year's Masters tournament. Or you have to be ranked in the top 50 of the world's best golfers. How many of us does that leave <laughs> to be able to play in the Masters? A lot of tournaments, right, when they have like a full field, they have like 120 folks. This year, they didn't even go over 90, I think, right? This is the Masters. And yet, no one would look at the Masters and be like, that's unreasonable. That's not fair. That's not right. Because everyone would look at the Masters tournament as a pinnacle, as a height of all awesome golf sportsdom and say, it is okay and reasonable for them to have that demand. for God to be who he is, it is not unreasonable for him when he gives a law to communicate we're not on the same level. And yet, for you to know and for you to recognize who I am as revealed through the law, it's a curse to you. Because you can't ever live up to me. Yes, in the things that we do, can we be like God in His righteousness? Absolutely. And yet, in our core, in the absolute center of our beings, we ourselves, apart from God, can never be deemed righteous as He is. So again, we could do righteous things, but doing righteous things doesn't all of a sudden make us inherently righteous in and of ourselves. This is the curse that the law brings. But as we've discussed, the way that God has undone the curse is by letting the curse fall on someone else on our behalf. So that is the law. That is, in a sense, why and how God, in the revelation of his character, in the process of our being justified, he's given the law to us. We've got to ask ourselves a question. When you go back into the Old Testament, and if you do a little bit of math, when God gave the promise of freedom and redemption and blessing to Abraham, it was like way, 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 way back in Genesis chapter 12, right? But when was the law given to the people of God? In Exodus, when God delivered his people from Egypt. And so as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, he says there was a 430-year cushion, a gap between when the law was, or sorry, excuse me, when the promise and the offer for faith was given, and then 430 years later, when the law was given. That sounds a little strange to me, doesn't it? When's the last time someone goes, hey, I promise, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give this to you, right? Or, or, or trust me, I'll, I'll get this done for you, right? Don't worry about it, right? And then like, could you imagine two weeks later, be like, hey, I, I promised to give that to you, right? But, um, but here's a condition. 
all of a sudden, the promise doesn't quite seem like a promise anymore. And so Paul understands the way that we're thinking. So if you jump down to verse 17, look at what he writes. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul is saying this. Don't get all antsy yet. Don't get it twisted. Just because God gave the law after his promise doesn't make the promise void. Or it doesn't suddenly make the promise now an offer based on our obedience. He continues on in verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have, having put on Christ, there is neither now Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. There's no distinction. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The key that we see here comes in verse 23 and 24. It says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith. So then the law was our, you say it, guardian. The law in its function was our guardian. Now what does a guardian do? Some of you guys have gone to high school dances before, right? And because high schools high school students do not have the capacity right they have the adult physical capacity to do adult like things but they do not have the mental reasoning right nor the heart capacity to exercise things like restraint order right you guys laugh right but to be, if we're all honest with ourselves some adults still have not graduated from that stage in in high school right right so what we what will we provide at these you know high school gatherings and and dances You'd always have chaperones. You would have guardians to watch people and make sure they don't screw up or do anything crazy. The law, being a guardian, just like a chaperone, is there to direct us, to guide us, but also to protect us. As much as the law in the revelation of God's being and character can be a curse, it was also given to us as a guide so that for one we would recognize that there's no way we could measure up to God, therefore ruling out the possibility that we could ever work ourselves into good graces with the Lord. But I want to also present another function that the law has. The law also functions to give us the proper perspective to wait for the promise. Because this is faith. Faith is believing God for who he is at his word. That he will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The law gives us perspective to wait properly for God to work for us. I want to illustrate this. As a dad, you learn a lot of different things about your relationship with God. It's one of the coolest things about being a dad, minus the sleepless hours and repetition, right? You know, your kids, like, they love doing the same thing over and over again. I can't stand that, right? My son wants to listen to the same baby shark, right? 
If you, if you go on YouTube, Baby Shark has over a billion views. Yeah, every parent, bless your soul, right? It's gotten to the point where my son comes to me and goes, he goes and he goes this, right? This is, the, this is the universal sign for shark, baby shark, okay? Um, but we have a morning routine, okay? I will wake up, right? Jed sleeps with us, right? We'll wake up, and Jed always goes, right? What does that mean? He's trying to say, uyu, milk. I thought, I want milk. So I look at Jed, right? And we have a heart-to-heart, right? With my 20-month-old and this 31-year-old, okay? I go, okay, Jed. Daddy is going to get you milk. I'm going to get you milk. So this is what we do. I pull him off of bed, and I say, hold my hand. And he always holds my hand. And we walk over to the kitchen. I take his milk bottle, and I go, Jed, just wait. Appa has to. She's a, she's a. Right? Uh, literally, this is, I explain it to him like this. Because it's oh, dirty. Right? It's, it's rotten, right? Right? So I'm washing the milk bottle. I'm, and I'm saying, Jed, just wait. Just wait. Right? I wash the bottle. And then I take it over to our fridge. Our fridge, it's like Korean fridges are so nice, right? right? It has this little, like, like the pop-up. You know, it's like you could have immediate access to your drinks. This is like technology at its greatest, right? So I'm like, Jed, see, will you? I'm going to get it for you right now. He goes, ah! right? And I'm like, so I have to give him some directions. I have to give him some commands. I have to give him some guidance. I say, Jed, be quiet. Wait. Stand right here. And then he goes, right? You know, kids, because they can't communicate. They like hit themselves. They do all these crazy things. Stop abusing yourself. What are you doing? Don't do that. Just watch. Look at me. Appa's doing it for you, right? And so I put his milk in his bottle. I get his probiotics. I mix it in. And I see, say, see, Jed? All you had to do was wait. All you had to do was listen. And I say, would you like your milk? And he goes, and then he takes his milk and he runs away. (laughs) It's a silly illustration, isn't it? Small illustration. Out of the many things that we experience in life. And yet, I understand the law. God didn't give the law because he was so sick of his people during those 430 years saying, oh my gosh, they are never going to get their act together. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give them rules so that they could be better. No. God gave the law to give his people a way to wait. The law, it's a curse if you're trying to measure up to God. But the law can be a blessing if you see it through the right perspective. Daddy is not telling me to live up to this to the T. Because daddy already told me he's going to fix everything. He's going to do everything for me. He's going to make all things right. But he gave me the law so that I could know just how to wait well. Did you know that the law was never meant to be a curse? The law was always meant to be a blessing. The way that God gave his law to the people. We call it the shamas, The hear. The listen. Israel, listen to your father who gives this to you, not to bind you under a curse, but so that he can teach us how to live as well as we can. 
as we wait for him to give us what we can't give for ourselves. This is the function of the law. And so Pastor Tim Keller, a pastor that I love, this is what he says. He says, the law, to bring a result, it has to be obeyed. But for a promise to bring a result, it only needs to be believed. For the law to bring a result, it must be obeyed. But for a promise to bring a result, all you have to do is believe in the one who gives it and to wait faithfully as he prepares it. This is the heart of faith. And so to answer the question, why has God chosen faith? As the means for salvation. Why would God make faith? Which is so easy. It dumbfounds people who live such good and righteous lives. But why would God make faith the way to be saved? It's because God who promised us redemption and blessing. It's so that this God can work for us. But we can't work for ourselves. God wants to do for us in his love because he loves us that much. He didn't give us the law to say, you must do it to get to where I want you to be. God says, no, here's the law so that you can wait. And as you wait with the law, I will do for you what you can never do for yourselves. I'm going to do the work. You sit back and you just watch me make beauty from nothing. This is the gospel. You know, when people say, God's not fair, God's not fair, how could he demand all these things when I could never live up to it? I say, you know what, you're right, God isn't fair. But it's not that he's unfair to us. God's unfair to himself. Because the payment that should have been exacted from you and me, we should have lived up to the part. We should have fixed and cleaned up the mess that we made. But what does God do? He loves us so much that he says, I'm so righteous and I'm so just that I'm not going to just let justice sweep under the rug. I'm not going to act like nothing ever happened and just falsely bring you into my family and be like, Haha, yeah, it's all good. No, I'm going to make it but good, but I'm going to make it just. So you know what I'm going to do? Because you can't pay for your own mess. I'm going to pay for your mess. Jesus, where are you at? You ready? Jesus says, yes, God. Yes, Father. Here am I. Send me. And so he sends his son on a suicide mission. Jesus knew he was going to die from the moment he stepped onto the earth because he knew God's plan from the beginning. But why? Why is it not carelessness? Why do we not call the death of Jesus suicide? Because it wasn't senseless. Because he was going for a purpose. That's why we don't call it suicide. We call it a sacrifice. Jesus, willingly, he lives the life, the righteous life that we all should have lived. That's another reason why Jesus came, to model for us the joy and the peace that comes when you live under the law of God. Jesus said himself in Matthew, are you kidding me? I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to show you just how beautiful it could be. So he lives the life that we all should have lived. But here's the deal. He dies the death that we all deserve to die. God is unfair to himself. He pays for what he's not responsible for. And he just looks at us and says, if you would just have faith to trust in me, to believe me, 
to follow me, not with your goodness, but to just follow me with whatever you are and who you are and whatever little things you have to offer. I'll take you with your faith. If you would just let me do what only I can do for you. I love my mom. You know, I was born and raised in a single parent home. My mom raised me from the time when my, my daddy moved to Korea when I was in second grade. And, you know, I was like, I'm an only child, right? So let's be real. If you're an only child, you're spoiled. Okay. <laughs> only children, don't try to defend that. Like, by virtue of this, as an only child, I'm the first to get everything. You know what I'm saying? Right? Like, there's no hand-me-down. Hand-me-down, right? You mean used, right? <laughs> so it's terrible, right? I'm an only child, right? Like, growing up, like, I had everything, right? I had, like, Nintendo, Super Nintendo, N64, Genesis, right? I had all those things at the same time, plus Game Boy, right, and all these things. Terrible. I don't know if that's the best way to parent. I think I turned out okay. Your laughter seems to (laughs) say otherwise. And I love my mom because my mom always told me, you know, especially as I started getting older, I said, oh, my, why did you do all that? Why did you spoil me? Why did you like in moments when our family was going through financially tough times? Like, why did you do all that? And she said, it's because I never wanted you to feel like you didn't have access to something that I could give to you. So growing up, you know, like when I was in junior high, we all like everyone, I don't know what it is, right? But back in the day. Like, when I was in junior high, watches were in, right? But not like Casio watches, right? Casio watches were considered, like, elementary, like, too digital, right? But everyone wanted, like, a cool analog watch, right? And so Fossil came in. You guys know Fossil brand, right? Every junior hire, right? Like, it was their dream to get, like, a Fossil watch, like, $50. Oh, my gosh, right? Like, oh, he's so cool, right? And every dude thought that if he owned a Fossil watch, he could totally get a girlfriend, Okay. And I fell into this trap, okay? I was like, but here's the deal. I'm not just going to go for fossil. I'm going to be extra, right? So, like, there, at our mall, right, back where I used to live in Torrance, right, in SoCal, we had this arcade called Aladdin's Castle, right? But every day as I would walk towards Aladdin's Castle, I would always pass by our watch, the watch store in the mall. And then I would just look through the glass, right? Like, Ooh, look at all these watches, right? And I was like, they're like, oh, what kind of watch are you looking at? And I was like, um, what's, what's, what's all the stuff above Fossil, right? And I remember I laid eyes on this watch, right? It was a Citizen EcoDrive Solar 200-meter waterproof analog watch, right? 200-meter waterproof. I was like, I like that one. That one's neat. I haven't seen anything like that before. And I said, sir, how much is it? He said, $299.99. I was bold. I went up to my mom and I said, Oma, there's a watch that I want. And she said, oh, really? She's probably thinking like, oh, can we get it from like one of those like crane games or something, you know? (laughs) I was like, no, no, no. It's a $300 watch. My mom was like, oh, Oma. But my mom, like, she's a sweet lady, right? Because, like, my other friends, right, like, typical Korean parents, right? If you tell them that, you'd be like, 
Ongdungi right now, right? And they'll just beat you, right? You know, but my mom always tried to model empathy to me and stuff like that. Oh, 그거 사고 싶어? Oh, you want that, huh? You want to buy that, right? And I'll be like, yeah, yeah. And so you know what's crazy? As I was about to graduate junior high, right, my mom was like, I'll go buy that for you as your graduation present. But it was like way before graduation, long before. And she said, where's the watch store? And I said, I'll take you. I took my mom to the watch store, right? You know, we get to the counter, and I've been eyeing that watch for such a long time. I knew exactly where it was, and I said, it's this one. So the cashier rings it up, right? And of course, with tax and stuff, it's, it's more than $299. And I thought my mom, you know, I was like, okay, you know what? If we don't have enough money, that's okay. Because it leaves an impression on you when your mom or your parents are willing to even go that far. And my mom said, no, 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 we'll get it. So my mom would always carry her money in like this, this like little pouch. And I remember her opening and unzipping the pouch, taking out the hundred, the two hundred, whatever twenties, whatever tens, whatever fives, whatever ones, all the bills that she had. And we counted it, and it didn't add up. So my mom said, okay, I have some coins. So she reaches in, she takes out all the coins, every quarter, every dime, every nickel, every penny. It still doesn't add up. The owner of the watch store says, you know what? We'll just, we'll just take that. This watch doesn't mean anything to you guys. But every time I look at this watch, I'm reminded of what happens when you just trust. I didn't earn this. I don't deserve this. But still, my mom had no problem emptying her wallet. It could be embarrassing, right? Seeing your mom, seeing a parent do that. Man, like, do we really not have enough? And yet my mom says, no. Don't feel that way, Billy. We're not poor. And it leaves an impression when you see someone who's so willing to give when you don't deserve it. When God put his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, he didn't spare a drop, an ounce of his blood. He put the full payment on there. Because God, in his intent, when we put our faith and our trust in him, never intends for us to live like orphans. He never intends on us to live like we're less than we are. He says, because you're made in my image. Because while you, in your state of sin, feel unworthy, lost, and depraved, to me, you're my masterpiece. You're my son. You're my daughter. And you're worth every drop of my own sacrifice for your gain.
I wonder what our community would look like if we modeled that sort of faith. Not faith defined by our works, friends, because often when we talk about faithfulness, we look at others and we say, oh man, it's about how much they do. No, not about your works. But what if we as a community had the capacity to model the faith of God by being able to show people love that they don't deserve? What would happen in our CGs when they start again? What would happen in our communities when you look to the person in front of you who has so much to say about what things they've done in their lives and in what ways they're not deserving of God's love and you could stand in front of someone and say, you're going to be okay because God loves you. He's done more than you would ever believe on your behalf to make you right with him. I want us to pray right now.